What is crackalacky and hard not listeners? I am Dan Valley. Come at you a little later this week than I wanted to, but my travels over the weekend pushed my schedule back quite a bit. But I am back better than ever, ready to deliver part two of our NBA draft primer with the box and ones, Adam Spinella. Follow the box and one on Twitter at the box and one underscore spelled and written exactly as it sounds. We have a great talk. If you didn't check out our first podcast together, we, we discussed a lot of the, the top lotto prospects. We're going to go off the beaten path a little bit more in this one. Talk about some underrated prospects, some guys who could technically go in the lottery, but might fall out. A lot of Ty Ty Washington talk here, some second round prospects to keep an eye on, so on and so forth. Some even some draft philosophy. It was a lot of fun. Wanted to touch on the latest news, though, since it's been a you know, few days since we, we last met. The big nugget as we discussed um, in the monologue of one of our previous podcasts, Quinn Snyder, no longer with the Utah jazz. He stepped down. He said it was basically time. That was his reasoning for it. Uh, We all saw this coming. The fact that it got to a point where we were sort of cautioned, you know, with the story, original story from Woj uh, that he wasn't sure if he was going to come back. It seemed pretty clear that he was not. And a lot of people believe that the Jazz's core had just grown stale. I don't think Quinn Snyder was necessarily a part of that. Utah, uh, Danny Ainge made clear that they really tried to keep him. I, th- I thought that was interesting that he made that publicly clear that they really aggressively tried to keep him. Uh, I I think the timing, you know, it could be kind of less than ideal because you're looking at Kenny Atkinson maybe being off the board. He's so deep into the Hornets process. Uh, looks like it's going to be D'Antoni or Atkinson in Charlotte. Meanwhile, hopefully that's not too outdated by the time you listen to this. Darvin Ham already going to the Lakers. I doubt that they would have necessarily had interest in Mike Brown now with the Kings. So you could say the timing behind this is you know a little bit inconvenient because now you have to stage a coaching search where maybe the full breadth of candidates aren't available. Uh, names already linked to this job, though. Of course, Johnny Bryant uh, from the Knicks, assistant with the Knicks, has ties to Donovan Mitchell, Will Hardy with the Celtics, Charles Lee with the Bucks, and Joe Missoula with the Celtics as well. That's from Woj. Woj also mentioned that Alex Jensen, an assistant on Utah staff, and Terry Stotts were interviewed as well. Woj further adds that we should expect a thorough, wide open process here. So again, I don't. I made a joke on Twitter about this. I don't actually believe it. Quinn Snyder stepping down at this time. I don't think it necessarily narrows the field of options all that much. If you miss out on a Kenny Atkinson or a Darvin Ham, if those are two guys you really liked, you know, sure then. But it does seem that they're casting a wide net and there wasn't these like super hot button coaching candidates available. Remember that Quinn Snyder was mentioned as the best possible coaching hire for teams when many thought that he would leave the jazz. It has become pretty clear though, that he doesn't intend to coach next season. We'll see if that holds maybe a job opens up uh, the middle of the off season or sometime next, next season that interests him. A lot of people just have him tabbed for San Antonio, whenever it is that Greg Popovich decides to, to leave there. My guess would be that definitely doesn't, my guess would definitely, it's a terrible way to phrase it. My guess is that doesn't happen before next season. So my gut tells me that Quinn Snyder will not coach an NBA team next year. Maybe he'll be bouncing around them. Like we hear about all these coaches who aren't necessarily, who don't necessarily have a gig at the moment, but that he'll eventually just wind up back leading the charge in San Antonio, assuming that Greg Popovich leaves after next season. If he doesn't, maybe that opens up just some other uh, spots that will become available there. The The other impact of this, of course, is well, what are the Jazz going to do with their roster now? We've talked a lot about this on the podcast. Uh, Rico Bear's name has been mentioned in trade rumors linked most recently to the Chicago Bulls. I have to say the two things that got me is the discourse on Twitter about 
how they shouldn't the Bulls shouldn't give a Patrick Williams to get Rudy Gobert was a, I found it a little funny. It's if you're not gonna do Vooch and Patrick Williams for Rudy Gobert, then you don't get Rudy Gobert. I don't even know that the Jazz would do that deal um, on their own. At the same time, I think Rudy Gobert is a terrible fit for Chicago, not because he's limited on offense, uh, which. Again, he is. He is a valuable offensive player. He's not the most expansive offensive player. You can't not go after players specifically for that reason. But when you already have DeMar DeRozan and the unique way that he operates for a perimeter playmaker at this point in time, I just hate that fit between him and Rudy Gobert. If they're both going to be on the court during crunch time, and that's not where I would allocate most of my trade assets if I'm Chicago. We did rank our favorite Rudy Gobert destinations uh, on a previous podcast. Um, I hated Chicago. I still hate Toronto. I don't, I get their interest because Rudy Gobert is so good. They seem to want a big and um, the thing that they, the, the, the beast that they could build defensively would be terrifying. But if you're not going to give a Pascal Siakam, which you shouldn't, you're going to do a point where it's going to cost you, you know, probably OG Ananobi and Gary Trent Jr. to make the money work there. There are other ways that you could do it, but you would have to step ladder your way there. It just, for Toronto, it feels like a bad allocation of assets as well. Now, if you're Charlotte, that's a different story. Um, that's a team that certainly springs to mind if you're Portland and want to include the, the number seven pick and then flesh out packages from there. I don't hate it either. I kind of thought momentarily that depending on the asking price, Detroit would just be super interesting. Uh, they already have Cade Cunningham, but you don't want to, you probably don't want to accelerate your rebuild if you're them at this point. I wasn't saying they trade Cade Cunningham, but Cade Cunningham and Rudy Gobert just make all the sense in the world. Atlanta's floating around out there as well as an upgrade from Clint Capella. And they have a bunch of stuff they can offer future picks. Um, some interesting younger guys, Jalen Johnson, Onyeko Kungwu, uh, DeAndre Hunter, extension eligible this, this summer. Um, and then they do have, Salary matching tools when you're looking at Bogdan Bogdanovich, if they do something with Daniel Gallinari's contract, then of course there's John Collins and Clint Capella. They seem ripe for consolidation trade. Uh, Dallas was mentioned to Rudy Gobert initially. There was a report from Mark Stein that they don't intend to make an all-in play for Rudy Gobert. I would argue that they really just can't make an all-in play for Rudy Gobert. The salary matching tools that they have, Dwight Powell, Davis Breton, Spencer Dinwiddie, Tim Hardaway Jr., that's just not going to move the needle. Maxi Cleveland, Reggie Bullock might interest the Knicks. You're not giving up Dorian Finney-Smith in this deal. You just can't afford it. He was too critical to your defense, and he has he covers more of the positional spectrum than Rudy Gobert. You can't trade a first-round pick. Uh, you can dangle this year's after you use it, but then you can't trade one before 2025. I just don't see Dallas as a team that has the assets to do anything there. Then you start to run out of options, you know, fairly quickly. Some have wondered if the Kings being the Kings would get in on this using the number four pick. Um, would you be willing to trade Domas Sabonis for Rudy Gobert? I like Rudy Gobert next to Darren Fox more than I like Sabonis, even though I thought the Sabonis Fox minutes were um, a lot better than than I anticipated at the time of the trade. You you could also make a case if we're going for a quirky team here, like just if Memphis wanted to do something and they stack together the salaries and it doesn't cost you Bain, John Morant, or Jaron Jackson Jr. Um, I don't think it's something that they would do that would be very out of character for them. But a Rudy Gobert, Jaron Jackson Jr. front court is going to would wreck fucking lives. So uh, I will be interested to see what happens with Rudy Gobert moving forward. He does seem content in Utah, though, and that's a big part of this, which brings us to the final portion of this news nugget. Donovan Mitchell is unnerved and unsettled per Woj. Uh, how about how about phrasing it like that about the Jazz's future following Quinn Snyder's departure? Here's my, so I have a few things. One, 
There's no way Donovan Mitchell was caught off guard by this. It was just publicly known that there was a chance Quinn Snyder would leave. I think the expectation was among people that he would leave. That's the, that's the vibe that I got. And so if you have reporters and even some fans that just believe that he wasn't going to be back, Donovan Mitchell absolutely knew this was a possibility. Um, If he still really wanted him there, that's great. And maybe he's just trying to leverage sort of his say into the next hire. Uh, We will have to see that. A lot of people think this is a preamble to a trade request, though, because this is typically how it starts, as you hear about these rumblings and mumblings and murmurings of a player being unsettled or unnerved um, rather than outright unhappy and then follows the trade request. I do not think Donovan Mitchell is going to request a trade after Quinn Snyder left the jazz. It just doesn't, he doesn't have the leverage stars always have some sort of leverage, but there's three guaranteed years left on his deal. Uh, He can then decline his player option for year four and become a free agent. Um, Right. When Rudy Gobert can become a free agent in 2025, 2026. I don't think Rudy Gobert is declining his player uh, option for 46.7. So he is under contract with the jazz through 2024, 2025 with three guaranteed years left on his deal. All decorum goes out the window there. You don't take into account where he wants to go. There will be teams that are willing to roll the dice and someone who doesn't necessarily want to be there when they have three years left on his contract. So if you request a trade demand now, you're, oh, you might get out of Utah, but you're not going to have serious control over where you're going. And so if you're Donovan Mitchell and you're trying to be strategic about this, the earliest that I think you can realistically request a trade is after next season when two years guarantee years are left on your deal before that player option. That's when teams start to think, oh, okay, like maybe that's just not enough time to mortgage the farm to get him. I also just don't know. There will be a market for Donovan Mitchell. I want to make that clear. But what are the Jazz getting back? I mean, are the Knicks, would they go all in for Donovan Mitchell? The Jazz seem pretty pissed that the Knicks were at their uh, first playoff game. There was a Knicks contingent there. It included Julius Randle, who was a Dallas native at the time. So there was that to consider. But again, that's a team. Miami's been mentioned. I don't see it with Miami. Tyler Hero plus they can technically dangle when you include this year's first round pick uh, up to four first round picks. You turn around and trade number 27. You can trade 2023, 2027, and then 2029. If they wanted to do that, I guess you're the Jazz. You could consider it. But Tyler Hero is extension eligible. Tyler Hero is not better than Donovan Mitchell. Does Tyler Hero want to be in Utah? Uh, And if he doesn't, or even if he does, is that the player that you want to invest? What could be near max money in Donovan Mitchell? He's better than Tyler hero. He's both of them have their defensive problems, but Donovan Mitchell by and large is better defensively. So, uh, excuse me. Yes. Donovan Mitchell is better defensively. Excuse my words there. So like, that's not really a a realistic destination. Dallas is going to run into the same issues if they want Donovan Mitchell with their, with their trade assets. There will be teams. Don't get me wrong. That come out of the woodwork. Phoenix could build some interesting trade packages. If they get a third team and recruit it as a Deandre and sign and trade. Uh, Is this the move that the Raptors like, because they need another primary creator. There are teams that will enter the bidding war for Donovan Mitchell and they will give up quite a bit to get him. But if you're Donovan Mitchell, now's not the time to try and apply this pressure to Utah because you're not going to have any control over where you're going. And Utah could slow play it as well for reasons I mentioned, if they're not getting that sort of just world beating offer. Um, If he does become available to throw it out, I do think Phoenix would be a team that should get involved there. Memphis would be, would be a team that I, I could see. Um, well, actually, I can't envision Memphis actually going after Donovan Mitchell and the John Morant and Donovan Mitchell by na- dynamic would be a little iffy. Again, if you're keeping Jaron Jackson Jr. as part of that deal, not trading the hearts and soul of your of your defensive structure right now, it would be fairly interesting. 
the Knicks would have to be involved there. I'd be curious to see if the Jazz would do business with them. Atlanta has been linked to Zach Levine. Uh, Donovan Mitchell would certainly, you know, the defense with him and Trey Young would be abysmal, but Donovan Mitchell would certainly help those non-Trey Young minutes and maybe during the Trey Young minutes get him moving away from the ball. Uh, there are just there are a ton of teams that list could go on and on that can talk themselves into making a play. Even a, even a team like Indiana, you can talk yourself in that because there's three years left on his on his contract. So my expectation is Donovan Mitchell doesn't get moved. It's too difficult for him to to force that to happen in a way that's more favorable to him. And if you're you know if if you're the Jazz, you also have to commit to a direction here. If you're moving Donovan Mitchell, if you're moving Rudy Gobert, what is the end game? Are you continuing to try and compete because the news flash here is if you move Rudy Gobert, I just, I don't see that happening. It would have to be the perfect deal. I think it would have to be something with Atlanta or maybe Clint Capella is coming back. And you're also sort of then, you know, you're, you're taking that drop off from Gobert to Clint Capella, but then you're also getting other assets, picks, prospects, players, and the tangible players are important here that you're inserting into your rotation to make it deeper, maybe shoring up the perimeter defense. If Deandre Hunter, for instance, is involved and has a bounce back here. Um, with Donovan Mitchell specifically, you're not moving him and getting better. Not, I'm going to argue the same with Rudy Gobert. I know there might be people that want the Jazz to build around Rudy Gobert. It's easier or more sensible with the way the NBA is played to build around someone who operates from the point of attack on offense. That is not Rudy Gobert. His offensive value drops off a ton if the Jazz enter an era in which they don't have a proven pick-and-roll playmakers around him. I know there are jokes about... Donovan Mitchell's lack of passing volume to him. But if you take Donovan Mitchell out of the offense, it makes things harder on everybody. Boyan Bogdanovich, Mike Conley, Jordan Clarkson, unless you're putting another, you know, say B plus point of attack score there. Um, and so you really have to think about this. If you're moving one of them, I think you have to be committed to a more methodical rebuild. If I had to guess which player you could move and then still remain competitive, I, I honestly don't know. I want to say Gobert just because I think that you can approximate value at center for cheaper with lesser players. You're not going to get the generational talent that is Rudy Gobert. I want to make that clear. But you can get by with the center who is appreciably worse than Rudy Gobert if you expand, broaden, strengthen the rest of your rotation. Whereas if you get rid of Donovan Mitchell and you take a, a starker drop off there – even if you deepen your rotation, I think it's harder to replace what he does and even the idea of him and how defenses are going to react to him. Maybe I'm wrong there. Rodrigo Bear is one of the most valuable encore players in the NBA. Looming over all of this talk, talk, of course, is which teams are going to want Rodrigo Bear's four-year, $170 million contract. Um, that is probably going to be viewed as a net neutral asset in itself. Rodrigo Bear's play can actually tip the scales towards asset. Again, we're talking about one of the greatest defenders in NBA history, that's a lot of money to invest in someone who doesn't run your offense, who can be, I'm not, I've made it clear in this podcast, you can't mismatch him off the floor, but he can be put in matchups where what he does best on defense is compromised. If you feel more confident, and I could see why Toronto specifically would feel this way, that you have the players in front of him to where he can't ever be mismatched off the floor. That is absolutely one thing, but there are teams that are going to think that way. A lot of teams, and we're seeing this with Phoenix now, doesn't sound like they want to even invest that type of money in centers, um, which is why DeAndre Ayton, this is probably just the last little news nugget, but we talked about both the Jazz and Phoenix a couple of podcasts ago. It does seem like um, John Hollinger, the athletic, I believe, wrote that it's basically fade to complete Ayton has played his last game in Phoenix. 
I'm shocked that the reporting has gotten that definitive ahead of restricted free agency. Maybe Aiton's agents are doing some really heavy lifting there. I'm at the point now, though, where, and I have been, I think, since we last recorded this, and I went, I did a couple podcast appearances the other week where I said, I, I think I'm leaning more towards Aiton being on a different team than I am with Phoenix. Whereas I, I definitely assumed it was vice versa because of how hard sign and trades are with base compensation. What are you going to get for him? The big question now is, would the Suns be willing to just let him walk if a Detroit or a San Antonio actually goes after him with a max offer sheet? I have I have literally no idea. That's a huge, even if you think they can get by approximating DeAndre Ayton with cheaper centers, to let someone so valuable, in theory, even if you don't think he's valuable to your team, and the fact that they could be willing to let him walk, that definitely might say something about what's going on behind the scenes. And look, Sam Amick also reported, by the way, for more Suns news that there was a, a mini COVID outbreak among the team, amongst the team towards the end of the Western Conference semifinals. Uh, maybe we'll hear more about that, but it definitely brought up questions about how the league is going to handle COVID protocols moving forward in future seasons, specifically to start next season. But again, with Aiton, he has value and you can move him for value. So if you don't, that is a fundamental failure in my book. It's not about whether you actually view him as worthwhile to your big pick, your bigger picture. He has value. If there's a team that's willing to sign him for near max or max money, you need to get into that before he signs an offer sheet and try and construct a sign and trade because it's a miss. It's an, I hate saying this about people, but it's asset mismanagement. If you just let him, him walk though, so again, on the jazz, I don't know who I wouldn't have a gut feeling on who they would hire as a new head coach at this juncture, I, I honestly have no idea Would the hire speak a lot about the direction they're headed uh, next season. Again, I don't know. Danny Ainge did say that they're not going to feel pressure to do it for the draft or free agency. Uh, that makes sense at this point. Um, and I honestly, I don't know what the jazz decided to do from here. I've said all along, I think it's more likely they move Rudy Gobert than they do Donovan Mitchell. And I think that that's just, that's the smart play because Peak Donovan Mitchell is technically going to be more of an anomaly than Rudy Gobert. But there, there's a real chance that they just run this back and they'll reevaluate maybe at the trade deadline or over the offseason where Rudy Gobert's deal is a little bit shorter and maybe he looks more appealing in that way. And then Donovan Mitchell is going to have more say in where he goes with only two guaranteed years left on his deal before free agency. That's where I'm at with the Jazz. If I had to guess, because I think everyone wants the predictions, if both Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert are on the Jazz to start next season, I want to say Donovan Mitchell is I'm like on the fence about Rudy Gobert just because it feels like this team is headed towards a, a seismic change. And maybe that seismic change was Quinn Snyder. We set the over under on the, the number of Snyder, Donovan Mitchell, and Rudy Gobert. We set the over under on, on those three being back at 1.5. And I think under was the most popular pick. We've already seen one. Will, will we see another? The jazz, I'm interested endlessly by every team this offseason, but they're they're going to be one of the, the more fascinating squads to watch from, from here on out. I will finish with this and say I expect the Rudy Gobert rumors to heat up significantly now that Snyder's gone and we've sort of seen this first domino of, of change fall. But that does it for me. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you're consuming your podcast. Um, follow us on the socials. We are at Hardwood Knox on Twitter, at Hardwood underscore Knox on Instagram. Check out our YouTube channel, our TikTok, which is at Hardwood Knox as well. The links to all of those are in our podcast description. Also, join our Discord. Let's try and get some more 
you know, I don't want to have to be the only one answering questions in there. Come in there, chat with a bunch of general NBA fans and fans of specific teams. It's, it's a, it can be a lot of fun, especially with the off season coming up. Our discord is also in the podcast description. Now that all of that's out of the way, let's get to some more NBA draft talk with the box and ones, Adam Spinella. Kind of moving outside the lottery, but still sort of inside the lottery. I have seen Ty Ty Washington mocked all over the place. Is he a lottery prospect? And what can you tell us about him? Yeah, uh, Ty Ty role dependent uh, this past year at Kentucky. So I think he's definitely a lottery prospect. He's a guy that I have a lottery grade on right now. I would not be shocked if he falls outside the top 20. And the reason for that is... You know, there's a, a continued lack of uh, understanding of circumstance that goes into the evaluation process. And that's not to call out NBA teams or decision makers. They do an unbelievable job with much more information than all of us who are kind of public facing right now are ever able to wrap our heads around. But two things stand out to me with with Ty Ty Washington, really three things. One is the miscast role at Kentucky. He was played next to a non-shooting pass-first point guard in Severe Wheeler and a non-shooting big man who lived in, like, literally brought a tent to the lane with him for games in Oscar Sheepway. And those two ran pick and roll all the time and or got their touches in different ways. And Ty Ty Washington's a really good passer and playmaker, but he also happens to be a very good shooter. And when there are three guys that all are talented enough to deserve to be on the floor, and one of them is a good shooter, guess which role he gets siphoned into? He's having the ball taken out of his hands and saying, in order to make this work from a talent perspective, we need you to shoot. So Ty Ty Washington is running off screens, spotting up on the perimeter, not getting a ton of reps with the ball in his hands. There were a couple games this year when Severe Wheeler, the point guard of Kentucky, was out. And in one of them against Georgia, I think Williams had 14 or 15 assists and only two turnovers. Like the pick and roll upside for this guy, when someone commits to letting him be him, is huge. And the context there is that we've seen this time and time again from Kentucky guys that go to the NBA. As a Knicks fan, this was the exact thing that I was saying two years ago about Emmanuel Quickly. That high school, more of a point guard, has a lot more lead skills with the ball in his hands that he was allowed to show at Kentucky because of who he shared the floor with. And that was Tyrese Maxey. Both of them really good NBA players now. Both of them deserve to have the ball in their hands, but the context of the college situation really took that away. So I think the best days of Ty Ty Washington and what he does to maximize his value, we haven't seen at Kentucky. The other part of the equation that has to be mentioned is an ankle injury that he suffered in the middle part of the year. And the fact that his mother has uh, had some ongoing illnesses drawing him and his attention, his emotional impact away from basketball at that time. I don't view that as a, a negative. I think that's a just a fact of the situation that, you know, he cares a lot of about a lot of things outside of basketball. And I'm really sick of seeing that be held against prospects and say, oh, does he really love the game enough? Like, no, his mother's sick. He needs to have his attention right. on other things at this time. Right. And athletically, he didn't look the same coming back from an ankle injury. So I look at the entirety of the context and I think that he's one guy because he's not a fantastic athlete that continues to get dropped down boards. But the Kentucky effect is real, folks. How many guards come out of that place time and time again and outperform their draft slot? Like it happens pretty much every year. Ty Ty's the one guy this year. 
I think he's a lottery prospect, but I can easily see a world where he slides down boards. It's interesting to me that he would slide even given the the off-court concerns are bullshit. I hate that stuff too. It was just like one of the most egregious recent examples was Anthony Edwards. Does he yeah. like the game enough? And it's like, just shut the fuck up about yeah, that already, please. Jalen Brown too. Like I'm a Celtics fan. Oh like, yeah. What, that was the, he's too smart. Yes. Or something for his own good. Oh my God. Yeah. And, and the- Washington, like super philanthropic, has interests and loves to give back in the community. Like how is anyone ever going to try to spin that into a negative? Just that he has other interests outside of basketball. And it's this huge you know, movement from decision makers that they just want basketball, basketball, basketball and impact and no risk to try to take them away from it. But it's crap at the end of the day. And it, even given all that, it surprises me that he would slide outside the lottery in a draft that is just like bereft of point guard talent anywhere near the top. And so I just assumed that I guess maybe it comes down to the needs of certain teams, but even just you know, you would think that his skill set and what he does is just so in demand because of the scarcity of it throughout the rest of this first round. Yep, no doubt about it. So uh, I, I'm a huge Ty Ty fan. I know Knicks fans are sick of seeing him mocked to the Knicks at 11. I think that the inclusion of Shaden Sharp, the recent ascent of Dyson Daniels, probably takes him a little bit lower than that range. Like he's the one guy that's going to continue to get notched down a little bit because of a couple other guys rising and again, the inclusion of Shaden Sharp. Is, uh, I'm sorry, I'm skipping ahead here. What's fueling Malachi Brynham's draft board ascension? Is it just the stuff I've read and watched? It's yeah, there's the off ball shooting, but there are people that think that he can create and that he showed as much later in the season. Is that what's fueling it? Do you believe in it? Can you break that down for us, please? It's, It's definitely what's fueling it and turning him into another one of those lottery guys. Again, the physical differences that he has from Ty Ty Washington are the reasons why his stock is rising and he may end up leapfrogging Ty Ty on some boards. I'm not a huge Malachi Branham guy, um, but at the end of the day, I understand the appeal. Big guards or wings who have decent feel, solid catch and shoot threats and physically ready. They draw a lot of attention. Uh, I don't want to take away from what Branham did either. Like it was really impressive for him to anchor an offense in the second half of the year in the big 10 as an 18 year old. And he did really well at it scoring the basketball, but I don't buy his shot creation for others. It's a skill that can be developed in the NBA, but I look at his natural uh, propensity to want to play slow, to try to feel contact and to fall in love with the mid range. And those are areas that I just don't love with. If I'm looking for a guy that's going to be a number one or two option on an NBA team, I'd, I'd rather take a bet on the high flying athletes or the guys who are just great with space creation over the guys who are tough shot makers when they don't have space. That's more so what Malachi Branham is. There's appeal, there's value to it. It it makes for a great mixtape in a lot of different regards, Um, but he's also pretty far away defensively. So concerns in that regard to me, understand why he's moving up draft boards in in a lot of different, different areas, but not a guy that I would go out of my way to invest in. This qualifies as a non-lottery question, but if you had your druthers, it would be a lottery question. Why are you so bullish on Jaden Hardy? I believe you have him at number six yeah. on your big board. Huge Jaden Hardy fan. Um, it, it's, I don't want to spend the eight minutes that go into every single detail about why I love him because I don't want to bore anybody to death. Um, but I try to focus a little bit more on, again, the circumstances that these prospects are playing in before they get into the NBA. And what I can't get past is how impressive it is to have an 18-year-old 
waltz into a professional league with probably this second or third most talent in the world, like the G League has right now, and command a number one leading role in an offense. That in itself shows how high Jaden Hardy's offensive ceiling is. Uh, the circumstances were not great around him, surrounded by four non-shooters, literally four other guys that he was playing with. Like playing for the Lakers. They're sub 30% from three, Dan. Like it's not just that they're inefficient, like they're really inefficient shooters. And I get it. Dyson Daniels is improving and got better as the season went on, but he just, he didn't operate in space. And because he's not an elite athlete, you look bad when you don't have the physical ability to just get past guys when they're all blockading the rim from you. Uh, he's going to thrive in the modern NBA game, bet on scorers, bet on guys who have good handles, underrated passer and playmaker. Like I see a decent amount of a Jordan Poolish type of guy in him, three level shot maker, but underrated feel underrated playmaker and it's so hard for me to look past guys who are 18 years old and just come in and, and can score 19 a game in a professional league. That, I, I can't get past that. If I said the over under for him getting drafted was, was number, let's say 21. Are you going to take the, if you're guessing as to what's going to happen, you think you're going to take the going higher than 21 or lower than 21. I think he goes before the 21st pick. I think that there's going to be a, a franchise that kind of talks themselves into the upside on that regard. Um, and, I think that he's a guy that's going to work out incredibly well in a one on O setting. So if, if some team gets in there, brings him in and, and falls in love with what they see, I think he's going to impress. I'd be curious if assuming Ty Ty Washington goes, the Rockets having that second pick at 17, they still don't necessarily have a point guard solution. I don't know based off what you say about Hardy, whether I love the idea of him and Jalen green together though. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting. There's no doubt about that. But um, yeah, I think, I think Houston at 17, like I wouldn't mind Cleveland at 14 taking that gamble um, and, and slotting him as more of a scorer next to Darius Garland or that third option in the backcourt. If they keep Colin Sexton long-term, like I've even thought about um, Atlanta taking a little bit of a risk there at 16 and just putting another guy who can create his own shot. So Trey Young can play more off ball. I think that's always been an underutilized part of his game because he's a really good three-point shooter and particularly good off movement. So a lot of avenues that I could justify, but again, it only takes one, guys. only takes one team to fall in love with a prospect and, and pick them a little bit higher than consensus might. Speaking of falling in love, every year there's at least one prospect I become infatuated with uh, who's not mocked or considered a top 10 player or whatever, or even a lottery prospect, you were able to guess based off the questions that I sent you, which one mine was this year. And it is Bryce McGowan's. Is he a top 20 pick? And am I like me looking at this is I've, I've called this the, the, my shake Gilgis Alexander infatuation, because that's kind of the year. It might've been the year before and it started. I was infatuated with him and couldn't understand why he wasn't going. I was livid when the Knicks didn't, I was livid when the Knicks didn't pick him. Uh, is he a worthwhile selection for, for my affections in this category? Uh, and we should apologize for his career arc as well, because I've fallen in love with him now. That can only mean probably spell bad things for him. Dan, did, uh, did Shea Gilgis Alexander go in the same draft as Kevin Knox? Was that the Knox year? That, I feel like that was uncalled for. It was topical, but it was totally uncalled for. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. But no, like, I, I think McGowan's is worth a top 20 pick. I'm not necessarily sure if he's going to get picked in the top 20. And 
there's a growing trend around the NBA right now of guys who go to the NBA draft combine who work to protect their stock. They remove themselves from 5v5 scrimmages because they don't want to have a poor showing and make teams rethink the first round buzz that they've already drawn. What inevitably happens year after year is one or two guys who do play and show really well end up getting a boost up their board because of the competitiveness factor. And NBA teams are going to look there and say, well, this guy was willing to bet on himself. He just loves basketball. And there's that, that favorite saying of ours coming back in. And as a competitor, we want to reward him for that. Those are the guys we want on our locker room. And that particularly happens outside of the top 15 or 16, because those are playoff teams that are generally picking there. And competitiveness fits in with their win now type of mentality. McGowan's did not play, did not participate in the five on five stuff. And I think that hurt him in the long run. I don't know if I'd advise him to do differently, but I think that it ends up hurting him a little bit because there were a couple of guys like Jalen Williams out of Santa Clara who bet on themselves, showed a little bit higher, and now might leapfrog him in draft position. I really like what McGowan's brings to the table. Six foot six, six seven, right on that borderline as a lead guard handler. Super aggressive, a uh, lot of size and raw tools there with his length, and he gets to the free throw line a ton. There's something about lead guards that generate free throws at a high rate that I fall in love with. Uh, it, these are guys that you swing on, whether it's him, whether it's Jaden Hardy, like go after guys that have incredibly high upside to become a three level scorer and, or can anchor an offense because at the very least, if they hit, you know, the 70th percentile outcome of what they can become, then they are a really valuable microwave scorer off the bench. So I love McGowan's. I'm right there with you. I have him, I think, 16th or 17th on my board right now. But uh, I, I think the the guessing games over who goes where outside of the top 15 become really challenging. And it's maybe it's recency bias for me coming out of the combine. But a lot of those guys like him, like Blake Wesley out of Notre Dame, Dalen Terry from Arizona, they chose not to play. And ultimately, that may come back to bite them. Who are some prospects that really juiced up? their stock at the, the draft combine. Yeah, Jalen Williams was one of them out of Santa Clara, more of a mid-major who's starting to get some seam and then played incredibly well and just showed up a ton of what he can do. Six foot six with a seven, two wingspan, like super long arms, uh, shot the ball really well from three this last year and has a little bit of three level scoring upside. Uh, another guy who helped himself was Jake LaRavia from Wake Forest. There are rumors out there that he has a first round promise. I can neither confirm nor deny that, but a very solid high IQ ball mover and spot up shooter. And then I think Christian Brown out of Kansas just won a national championship, hyper competitive, like brings a little bit of that, um, you know, Grayson Allen, like walk into every building and be the villain and loves that role type of mentality to him. And I think that there's going to be some team in the 18 to 28 range that's going to fall in love with that and say, you know what, let's, I don't want to play against that guy. Let's make sure he's on our team and has a little bit of that winning trait to him. So uh, those were three guys that really helped themselves, but can't get past Dyson Daniels for the G League Ignite. He had the best individual work out there and saw himself go from a fringe top 10 pick to almost knocking on the door of, of top five with the way he shot the basketball and just was able to showcase all the things he can do at his size. Fair warning, I'll be editing that out of the podcast um, as I try to get him to fall to the Knicks. Uh, you, you mentioned that there's just a ton of unpredictability once you get to a spot in this draft. Are there any teams 
outside the top 10 picks that you're just sort of endlessly fascinated by? You know, I mentioned Atlanta at 16 a little bit earlier. Like, I don't know what fit or need is necessarily going to be for them. Uh, they have a decent amount of young guys. Like, they got Jalen Johnson and Sharif Cooper in the draft last year, who I was fascinated by. I think we're getting ready to the point where Onyeka Okongwu deserves a little bit bigger a role in their organization. But they kind of stalled out a little bit after making uh, the big playoff run that they did a year ago. And I would not be shocked if they view this as a time to make some sort of a consolidation deal to try to move around a lot of their parts if this pick is for sale or if Schlank, if he keeps the pick, what direction he goes. Do they just want another veteran to come in and be able to help them right away? Like a guy like O'Shea Agbaji out of Kansas who can just be that solid three and D prospect might make sense there. Or is he going to continue to roll the dice on those high ceiling prospects like they did last year? Uh, a lot of different variables at play there. And then I, I think we also have to mention Charlotte for intriguing teams because they have both 13 and 15, and they desperately need a high-caliber big man. Did they trade any of Wait, these? Wait, coaching wasn't the problem there? <laughs> Last time we were together, we put the, the James Borrego jinx on things. So, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's make sure we're very clear about this. They need rim protection in order for their defense to be better. I think they're going to address it this year. Do they go with a guy like Williams or Duran in the draft? Do they package those picks to move up to get the right guy? Do they make some sort of a draft night trade in order to get an established veteran? Like there's so many possibilities that could happen there. I think Charlotte's another team to watch. I mean, going on for some reason, a lot of Charlotte radio stations and shows lately, maybe they like to make their fans angry, which is why they bring me on. I said repeatedly, I'll be floored if there's not, and I'm not talking about moving up just because I don't think you, if you want a rim protector, I don't, moving up isn't going to do them any good unless they're vaulting into the top three, obviously. I'd be floored if one or both of these picks isn't used in a deal, even if it comes after, even if the news comes after the draft, that brings in a veteran just to upgrade at the five spot. Just given how they acted after the offseason, um, getting rid of James Borrego, sort of making it feel like they took a step back this year, even though they won more games, even though I'd argue that finishing outside the top 10 in defensive efficiency was probably overachieving relative to the personnel that they had. I will be flabbergasted if one or both of these picks isn't used to net of more veteran five. Yep. And look there, you never know how the Deandre Ayton or Ruby Gobert sweepstakes are going to shake out over the next month or two. So uh, Charlotte's just, they're just a, a fascinating player. A lot of people have mentioned about how clumped together, sort of the, I don't want to say the bottom of the draft is, but like the middle of the draft is. Yeah. And I don't think I understood the extent of it until I posed you the question, are there some second round prospects that we should keep an eye on to which you responded by saying, well, players 22 to 50. <laughs> are just absurdly close together. So are there any players in that range, that clump that we should be keeping an, an eye on? And I think that's for fans of just teams that are good or contenders, maybe who don't have picks or looking to pick up an extra pick. Like those are the types of prospects that are super interesting because you want to see if your team can land someone like that or put themselves in a position to get someone like that if they don't have a pick already. Yeah, it's a lot of years we talk about themes with draft classes and the pervasive theme coming into this part of the draft cycle was a little bit weaker at the top than normal. Okay. Depth around the top 10. And then not a lot of great guys when you get to the later part of the first round. And I think that that's not necessarily changing. I think the top end talent in this draft class is getting better, but 
there's just no way to predict what happens once you get outside the top 20. Like it, it's, it's going to be really hard to do any mainstream outlets, any people you talk to, like there are at least 50 guys that are deserving of a first round grade in this draft class for whatever that means. So um, the different directions you go in that area, you go the young route and you take more of a project, you get them on that four-year contract in the, you know, final couple slots of the first round and, or really prioritize them when there's low risk, the organization in the earlier parts of the second, you could go for the more prized veteran, the guy that you feel really comfortable is just going to come in and be a solid, sturdy role player. So that outside of the top 22 or 23, which as we said earlier, is the kind of cutoff line for you only get 22 or 23 really good guys in each class. When you're drafting outside of that, you just go for a guy that you think, hey, let's hit singles instead of swing for the fences. I don't really know. I think it's going to be team dependent. I think there's probably going to be a, a good deal of movement that goes on in those rounds. So what I'll bring to the table for you instead, Dan, are two guys that I don't think are going to jump up into the first round, but will return excellent value for where they're drafted in the second. One of them is Travion Williams out of Purdue. I'm a huge fan of his because he is the best passer in this draft. Not just for a big man. He's the best passer in this draft. Like super, super creative. He's needed to work on his body and slim down. He's done that. He needs to add a little bit more three-point range. He's getting there. Um, defensively, he's not a rim protector, and he plays a five-man spot. You know, there was some questions about usage at Purdue. He's played out of the post a ton, but his game as a playmaker translates to any facet of basketball that he's a plug-and-play, really good offensive option. And if he adds a three-point shot, I think the offensive additions for a team are very much worth some of the shortcomings he might have on defense. Another guy I'm super big on is Ron Harper Jr. When you hear Ron Harper, you think of those big physical kind of point guard like his dad, right? Uh, Ron Harper Jr. is a hoss, like a load and a half physically and fits into this modern positional versatility, switchable defender who can guard one through four and shoot close to 40% from three. Cause he did that this year for Rutgers. He was 39.8% from three on really good volume because he's so strong, has long arms with a, a over seven foot wingspan can finish at the basket and is crafty and strong about getting there. And he guards every type of position that you want. I think a high utility player type of role guy that I would love to get my hands on in the second round. So Travion Williams out of Purdue, Ron Harper Jr. out of Rutgers, two guys that I think will go in the second and outperform their draft stock. Wrapping up with these uh, cookie cutter categories, which prospects are you much higher on relative to consensus in the, since we've already talked about him, non Jaden Hardy division, of course. Yeah, the non-Jaden Hardys. Uh, I like Blake Wesley out of Notre Dame. I have a top 20 grade on him, mid-first round grade. Just love the upside and the tools that he has. Very far away, though, super raw, but can be a three-level scorer in the NBA while having a 6'11 wingspan, which allows him to be a positive defender. I also like Max Christie out of Michigan State. Uh, He has some three-point range to his game. He did not shoot the ball incredibly well for a specialist this year in his freshman year with the Spartans. But a really good complimentary guy, I mentioned it earlier with Benedict Matherin, things that I value personally are movement shooters, guys who create gravity, uh, move in space, and are, are consistent three-point threats. I think Christy gets there eventually, and I'm not willing to talk myself out of him because of a smaller, uh, 
you know, if what 35 game sample size in his college year where he, he didn't shoot the ball particularly well, he's also a solid defender. So I, I do like Christie quite a bit. Which prospects are you much lower on relative to consensus? All right. So AJ Griffin, I know we talked about earlier, like I don't, I barely have him in my top 20. I'm really, really worried about the defense. Spicy. Like, it, it is spicy. And uh, I've, a lot of these have not worked out for me in the past. Like I think I had LaMelo ball like 17th or 18th on my board a couple of years ago. So like, let's just ruin my credibility. I'm happy to throw that out there, but I own it. Um, and hopefully someday, again, I want Griffin to prove me wrong. Hopefully someday I'm able to look back at this and learn a lot of things about projecting guys who are questionable uh, if Griffin does prove me wrong. So certainly welcome that. Um, also not a huge Malachi Branham guy, just because I, as I said earlier, I don't love really physical guys who don't create space. And I think his mid-range heavy arsenal doesn't fit the modern game in the way that I'd like it to. Kennedy Chandler out of Tennessee. I just, I don't see the value in drafting undersized point guards. Like each of the last couple of years, there've been guys that I think are first round talents. Uh, Sharif Cooper out of Auburn, uh, Trey Jones, who was out of Duke, plays with the San Antonio Spurs now. They fall to the middle later parts of, of the second round because there's just not a ton of versatility you can have with those guys. And then Christian Coloco. Now he gets first round grades, big man out of Arizona. A lot of people like him, but 22 year old bigs rarely go in the first round. So I would much rather try to make the, the swing on him later. And I don't think he does any one thing well enough to be uh, draftable in, in a you know top 35 circumstance right now. So that's a little bit of a spicy take compared to the, the mainstream right now. But um, again, we had that conversation about bigs and trying to figure out exactly where do you value drafting them. I think if you don't see a high pathway to upside, you probably avoid taking a guy even in the second round. So uh, I'm kind of out on Coloco and Chandler and don't love the modern fit of Branham and AJ Griffin. Anything else that I haven't asked you about that you think needs to be touched on with, uh, with regards to this year's, this year's draft? Well, Dan, I'm going to ask you a question and put you on the spot a little bit, which is, is not something that you're going to be unprepared for. But as I start preparing my own draft analysis here, trying to get a really good feel for which what teams will do and which ones are the intriguing ones to watch. I know we mentioned Charlotte and Atlanta as being potential movers. Would love to hear from you, Knicks. What is the position that they really need if they need a position and what type of player do they need to be targeting if they're not going by a certain position? So I would say they just need to take the best player available because I don't think there's anyone on the roster you tailor your future around right now. And that just includes RJ Barrett. I think he showed a lot of growth over the past two years. The increased rim pressure is great. The finishing is not. I think there's more passing chops to be explored. They have neither given him that opportunity consistently. Uh, I've been very impressed with the defense over the past two seasons for the most part. And so I'm taking whoever I just deem the best player available there. If I had to boil it down to a position, I still think they need a lead playmaker. And I just don't think you're going to get that at number 11, which is why I default to, can you just get into like the six, six to six, eight guy range, someone who's either going to work on defense or gives you complimentary shooting or both. Um, that's why I'm just currently in love with Dyson Daniels. I think what they absolutely should not do is trade this pick for a non-star. If it's going to be, it's not going to get you a star on its own, but if someone we're not talking about becomes available and you need to bake it into a package, fine. Otherwise, I would be focused on just sort of seeing what you have in the youth of your roster, including this pick, because I still don't think you have a great idea if 
I, if people have asked me, I could ask you, who are the Knicks' tentpole prospects right now? If we're being honest, it let's even it, it's either no one or just RJ Barrett. I love Emmanuel quickly. Obi Toppin's a shot of adrenaline. Quentin Grimes, Deuce McBride, they're intriguing. That Cam Reddish trade was a unmitigated disaster at this point. Uh, I, they're, they're sort of just still wandering in the wilderness at this point because they doubled down too heavily on a season that was clearly an anomaly. And so I don't know which route they go. I, it would not shock me though, if by the time next season tips off, we find out that the Knicks traded this pick for just a non-star addition, which to their credit would be a little out of character. We've seen them be somewhat creative within this front office around the draft. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think the Knicks and the wizards are the two hardest teams for me to peg and they come right at 10 and 11, those rounding the corner parts of the lottery and can have a lot of impact on the, on the draft moving down. So the, the better feel we can get for what's going to happen there. I think that those are not necessarily shakeup spots, but like it's going to set the stage for what other teams afterwards can really do. You had DM me about Washington and you think they should be a candidate to try and aggressively move up if they can get into Jaden Ivey territory. Like that's the guy that you would consider if you can move up for in your Washington to try and do it. I, I just, I don't know what Washington is right now. Like, are they trying to win now? Because their roster doesn't suggest that they have the pieces to do so, but they're not trying to rebuild either because they don't have enough youth and their contract statuses are quickly running out of flexibility to be able to make a lot of big moves because Bradley Beal is going to be worth a fortune over the next couple of years. Uh, I, I think they need to go in on finding a point guard because they're the one team that has a glaring need if they're going to try to make a push for the postseason. And Ivy, again, the availability at four with Sacramento intrigues me to the point where if Washington could construct some sort of a deal to try to move up and get Ivy. I think that that's a huge franchise tentpole that allows you to split the difference, to be really taken care of in the long term because you have a future star, and to find the positional fit and a little bit of an instant impact to play with Bradley Beal right away. So I know Wizards fans are probably not in love with adding another hyper-athlete and ball-dominant guy next to Bradley Beal because we've seen the last two kind of fizzle out in Washington in that regard. But I, I just I'm a big believer in Jaden Ivy, and if they can swing it at four, I'd be all for it. But they, I mean, there's so many other avenues that they could go down and try to get a guard that can come in and compliment Bradley Beal right away. To your credit, they also tried to slow down like Spencer Dinwiddie, and that didn't work alongside Bradley Beal either. And so I like you're starting to you're going to run out of options eventually. And I think the more salient point is if you do go out and get Ivy, if you trust his shooting and ability to play off the ball in time it works with bradley beal but it might be just as critical that this is someone who set you up for the future should it be if we're being honest despite what's being said bradley beal is not going to come close to finish his next contract in washington that's just that's the reality of the situation the other two teams i want to mention really quickly i think this is more out of want and you sold me on benedict matherin before this pod when i was watching the videos that you've done on him if they can get if new orleans can get him I'm like, okay, this is someone who comes in, helps right away. They get Zion back. They use their mid-level and biannual free agency. This gets really interesting. But just watching them after they started 3-16, and 16, knowing what they did against Phoenix, knowing who's coming back, knowing the makeup of this team, I really just want them to make – I want a player who fits to become available that they can go out and acquire in a consolidation trade because that number eight pick is – it's not expendable, but like they're a team that can absolutely justify moving that level of selection. 
and, and they can do it because they hit on so many rookies this year. The, the track record that they're developing of drafting is really impressive so that they have the flexibility to, if they really need to, and it's time to go all in, trade one of those future picks because they've hit so well on kind of undrafted guys or, or second round picks. What is their need though? Is it, they just need more shooting on the perimeter or is it a floor spacing rim protector next to Zion? And then when you have that latter discussion, as I have had with a few Pelicans fans who vehemently disagree with me, which is totally fine. Jonas Valanciunas is really good. You have Larry Nance Jr. I still don't like Jackson Hayes' game, maybe particularly for this roster, but he gave you some really solid moments this year while also playing next to Jonas Valanciunas. So that sort of complicates it, but it feels like I I don't, I can't, I would have my own preferable biggest need, but it feels like there's not a consensus on what this team needs most. I'd say that they need shooting without sacrificing defense. And you can put whatever position on that you want. But when Zion comes back, he needs the floor spaced around him. So if you're going to add anybody else to this team, make sure they can shoot without sacrificing defense. I really want to see Zion under Willie Green, just the transition defensive mindset he instilled. I'm just wondering if that will reach Zion as well. And just the last team, and I think they're quietly like, there's an aimlessness to what they're doing in a good way. The Spurs. Yeah. Because it's, they have three first round picks, one of which falls in the lottery at number nine. Then they have number 20 and they have number 25. Correct. Yeah. And 38 as well. Early second rounder at 38, which is, that's a dangerous pick for the San Antonio Spurs to have. They, I could absolutely see them just keeping all of these picks. There's maybe one draft and stash in there. And then they're still bringing in three rookies, but they're also like, they're just in this weird spot where unless you're moving DeJounte Murray, I don't know that you could, and I, I don't think they should. I want to be clear. You can't get much worse because who are you moving aside from Murray that actually makes you a lot worse? As good as Vassell is, as good as, you know, I thought Keldon Johnson showed a lot of progress this past season. At the same time, if you're asking whether you're ready to compete, the question has to be, and I know there are only a handful of guys where the answer is yes, can DeJounte Murray be the best player on a contender? I think the most favorable response is that remains to be determined. I would lean towards no. Then you have to ask, well, is that player potentially on our roster or are we going to be able to bag him in this draft or upcoming drafts? I know the Spurs find value everywhere, but you could also argue the answer there is no because they're going to be perpetually just drafting around this spot. And so I just want, they could, if you told me they made a consolidation trade because they seem more open to making moves like that now, given what they did with DeMar DeRozan and then Derek White, if you told me they went that route and they tried to get Zach Levine in a sign and trade, or there was someone who cropped up on the open market, that wouldn't shock me and I'd support it. If you told me that they tried to somehow gut the roster, they're taking just the biggest swings possible in the draft. I'd be all for, for that. I am so curious as to, and they, by the way, they might have the most cap space in the league, depending on how some of these books shake out. I cannot wrap my head around San Antonio's direction. And normally that would be cause for me to be down on it. But I find myself like exhilarated by it. <laughs> yeah. I think it's finally like the Spurs have always been an organization that's a little bit more quiet and sits out a lot of big deals or doesn't make huge splashes in free agency. This is the year when they could really be aggressive and we've never seen what that turns into for them. Like the the Marcus Aldridge year was a little bit different, Um, but this is, this is going to be huge. Um, We, we've let off a lot of this talk with the Kings and (laughs) say like, how hard is it to predict what they're going to do? 
And I feel the same way with the Spurs, but we give San Antonio the benefit of the doubt because whatever it is that they end up doing, like they're typically right. They get proven right as time goes on. So I am more inclined to say like, I'm not going to try to figure it out before the draft, but I'm going to wait in the later parts of July and see how all of it comes together and say, man, why didn't I think of that? That actually makes a lot of sense for this organization. So I just can't wait to see how they get to that point. They're the one team that I'm okay with taking Dyson Daniels before the Knicks because it's not right before them. So this isn't like a Steph Curry situation, but it's also okay. If Dyson Daniels is going to wind up there, maybe he just uh, ends up turning into a, a stud. And I did want to ask you very quickly, who is the second most important player long-term to the Spurs right now? Oh, I will give you, I'll give you my answer. And I don't think it's a good one. I have Devin Vassell. Yeah. I think Vassell, I think Vassell is my guy too. Uh, I wouldn't, I would, I'm kind of toggling between him and Josh Primo and the reason. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because Josh Primo, like, he was the one guy that you drafted with the intention of being a primary scorer and the guy that really just puts the ball in the basket. That's still what wins games in the NBA. So I think he's their most important prospect, but not necessarily their second best player right now or most valuable guy, at least in terms of conventional value to everybody else in the league. Spins, this was fantastic as always. You are a vat, an endless, bottomless vat of information and insight. I appreciate it. Are you able to tell our listeners where they can find you and all the spectacular work that you do. I am willing and able, Dan. Uh, thank you again for having me on here, but follow me on Twitter at the box and one underscore our YouTube channel. Adam Spinella has NBA draft scouting reports coming out pretty much every day. And then we have a Substack page that writes about those prospects in longer form, as well as some draft philosophy pieces. That's the box and one substack.com all of our work comes in one of those three places so if you hit any of those up you're guaranteed to find something that you might disagree with the link to the youtube channels in the description i highly recommend anyone who's going into crash course mode for the draft like myself needs to check it out uh it's amazing spins thank you so much congratulations in advance on the wedding and like we said at the top I hope that you're able to enjoy it and end unplugged because you work really hard. And I know myself and everyone who listens to this around these parts super appreciate all the hard work that you do. Appreciate it.